welcome back to That's What I Call Jones History. I'm your host, Christina. We are going to go on a journey of knowledge together as we discuss France from origin to modern times. This is going to be part one of a several part series. Mostly we are going to get into the construction of the country from its origins until around the 14th century where we get to see more of an expansionist country which will include more of a integration of black history when it comes to France because there is quite a lengthy period of history we already discussed uh, New Orleans which was a province in the United States of France and how their racial disparity was in some ways well they definitely were different but in some ways a little bit more of a less systemized type of racism but today we will only be discussing how France came to be before we do jump into the the notes we have here, which I will be reading from several sources listed below. Wherever you listen to this podcast, Podbean, Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, go down to the rating section, drop some stars, leave a review. My social media will be there as well. Remember to like, share, and subscribe. If you want to send feedback for That's What I Call Jones History or any other podcast that I do, blackercouch at gmail.com. And let's get into it. France was originally named Gaul or Gallia. Julius Caesar led the Romans into Gaul whilst the Celts were still dominating the territory. Gauls are familiar in Roman history because it is the Gauls that led to the destruction of the Western Roman Empire. Whereas the Eastern, which was later classified as the Byzantine Empire, uh, survived. But Rome was sacked by the Gauls. In 121, the Roman troops won a conclusive victory over the Celtic tribes and the Roman Empire, set the first Roman province in the area of Narbonne. Marcellus allied to Rome as it was a great rival of the Carthaginians became an important center for trading and merchandising. After his triumphal campaigns and famous Gaelic wars between 58 and 51 BC, Julius Caesar got built the town of Lutetia, future Paris, in 52 BC when the southern regions were already successful. I was not aware of that. The southern town of Lyon used to be the capital of the Gauls, Romans also brought the Christian religion into Gaul in the second century. From the third century, barbarians from the east, such as the Franks, the Vandals, and the Visigoths, started to invade the territory. Thus, Gauls gathered up and formed alliances with local lords to gain their protection. The first marks of the feudal system emerged. The Franks were actually a Germanic people who decided to conquer the Gaelic territory from the east. Their leader, Clovis, rapidly became the first Frankish king and the country of the Franks received its Latin name, Francia, 
France, and modern French. Christianity was definitely renowned and adopted when Clovis, who initiated the Merovingian, one of those, dynasty, was baptized in the Cathedral of Reims in the late 4th century. French legends related the Clovis conversion to Catholicism as evidence of his love for Clotilde, a Burgundian princess who was also Catholic. Oh, bitch. The most popular French king's name, Louis, may derive from the Latin name for Clovis. Clovis, leader of the Salian Franks, defeated Siagrius at Socians and subsequently united most of the northern and central Gaul under his rule. He then recorded a succession of victories against other Germanic tribes, such as the Alamanni at Tobiac. It was in 496 that he converted or adopted Catholicism. This gave him greater legitimacy and power over his Christian subjects and granted him clerical support against the Arian Visigoths who plagued his rule. He defeated Ehrlich II at Bouli in 507 and annexed Aquitaine and thus Toulouse, is it Toulouse? into his Frankish kingdom. The Goths retired in Toledo in what would become Spain. Clovis made Paris his capital and established the Merovingian dynasty, but his kingdom would not survive his death in 511. Under Frankish inheritance traditions, which also created a lot of drama, all sons inherit part of the land, so four kingdoms emerged centered on Paris, Orleans, Soussons, and Reims. Over time, the borders and the numbers of Frankish kingdoms were fluid and changed frequently. Also during this time, the mayors of the palace, originally the chief advisor to the kings, would become the real power in the Frankish lands. The Merovingian kings themselves would be reduced to little more than figureheads. By this time, they ain't gonna also be for long, (laughs) which is why... Louis is known as one of the greatest because he's like, yeah, fuck all that noise. I'm the man up in this piece. You'll never see the light of day. Who the fuck you think you fucking with? I'm the police. I run shit here. You just live here. If I'm not mistaken, wasn't it in Alaric that Julius Caesar marched into Rome and executed when he was defeating the Gauls? Is this Alaric II some type of relative of him? Just curious. Have to look that up later. In 600 BC, Ionian or Ionian Greeks from Phocia founded the colony of Massalia, present-day Marseille or Marseille. There's definitely some pronunciation errors <laughs> in this podcast. Well, it depends on where you are too, because I feel like I hear certain words pronounced different ways. On the shores of the Mediterranean Sea, making it the oldest city of France. At the same time, some Celtic tribes arrived in eastern parts, Germania Superior, of the current territory of France. But this occupation spread in the, re- in the rest of France only between the 5th and the 3rd century BC. By this time also, Muslims had conquered Hispania and Septimania. 
also becoming part of the al andalus which were threatening the french or frankish kingdoms duke odo the great defeated a major invading force at tule in 721 but failed to repel a raiding party in 732 the mayor of the palace charles martel defeated that raiding party at the battle of tours and earned respect and power within the frankish kingdom the assumption of the crown in 751 by Pepin the Short, son of Charles Martel, established the Carolingian dynasty as the king of the Franks. The coronation of Charlemagne is a marked occasion because the Carolingian power reached its fullest extent under Pepin's son, who was named thus so. In 771, Charlemagne reunited the Frankish domains after a further period of division, subsequently conquering the Lombards under Desiderius in what is now northern Italy in 774, incorporating Bavaria 788 into his realm, defeating the Avars of the Danubian plain in 796, and advancing the frontier with Al and Dallas as far south as Barcelona in 801, subjugating Lower Saxony after a prolonged campaign in 804. Victory is mine! In recognition of his successes and his political support for the papacy, Charlemagne was crowned Emperor of the Romans or Roman Emperor in the West by Pope Leo III in 800. They can still give people crowns and titles, but technically the Roman Empire in the West had been defeated. Charlemagne's son, Louis the Pious, emperor from 814 to 840, kept the empire united. However, his Carolingian empire would not survive Louis I's death. Two of his sons, Charles the Bald and Louis the German, swore allegiance to each other against their brother, Lothair I in the Oaths of Strasbourg and the empire was divided among Louis' three sons in the Treaty of Verdun in 843. After a last brief reunification between 884 and 887, the imperial title ceased to be held in the western realm which was to form the basis of the future French kingdom. The eastern realm however which would become germany elected the saxon dynasty of henry the fowler under the carolingians the kingdom was ravaged by viking raiders in this struggle some important figures such as count otto of paris and his brother king robert rose to fame and became kings this emerging dynasty whose members were called the robertines were the predecessors of the capetian dynasty Led by Rollo, say what? Or Rollo, as some others uh, may make uh, pronounce his name. And yes, from Vikings as well. Some Vikings had settled in Normandy and were granted the land, first as counts and then as dukes by King Charles the Simple, in order to protect the land from other raiders. The people that emerged from the interactions between the new Viking aristocracy and the already mixed Franks and Gallo Romans became known as the Normans. 
And I think we know what those damn Normans do and get up to when it comes to a certain island across across the sea. And you can already see how this inner inter kind of mix of culture and history would in fact lead to these two countries being in consistent battle for the next like I don't know centuries. France was a very decentralized state during the Middle Ages. The authority of the king was more religious than administrative. The 11th century in France marked the apogee of princely power at the expense of the king when states like Normandy, Flanders, or Languedoc enjoyed a local authority comparable to kingdoms in all but name, which is a huge thing of why Normandy, uh, England, and France truly had some serious, serious conflicts. The Capetians, as they were descended from the Robertians, were formerly powerful princes themselves who had successfully unseated the weak and unfortunate Carolingian kings. The Carolingian kings had nothing more than a royal title when the Capetian kings added their principality to that title. The Capetians, in a way, held a ducal status of king and prince, or a dual status of king and prince, as king held the crown of Charlemagne, and as Count of Paris, they held their personal fiefdom, best known as uh, Ile de France. The fact that the Capetians held lands as both prince and king gave them a complicated status. You don't say? And due to this, they were involved in the struggle for power within France as princes, but they also had a religious authority over Roman Catholicism in France as king. The Capetian kings treated other princes more as enemies and allies than as subordinates. Their royal title was recognized yet frequently disrespected. Capetian authority was so weak in some remote places that bandits were the effective power. Some of the king's vassals would grow sufficiently powerful that they would become some of the strongest rulers in Western Europe such as the Normans, the Plantagenets, the Lucidians. I don't know about those. The Hotvilles, the Romfields, and the House of Tully, Tule, Toulouse, successfully carved lands outside France for themselves. The most important of these conquests for French history was the Norman Conquest by Ro- William the conqueror following the Battle of Hastings and immortalized in the Bayou Tapestry because it linked England to France through Normandy. Although the Normans were now both vassals of the French kings and their equals as kings of England, their zone of political activity remained centered in France. An important part of the French aristocracy also involved itself in the Crusades and French knights founded the, uh, and ruled the Crusader states. An example of the legacy left in the Middle East by these nobles is the Crack de Chevalier or Chevaliers. Enlargement 
by the Count of Tripoli and Toulouse. So what was it like if you were just a medieval peasant in France? Well, in the Middle Ages, the vast majority of the population between 80 and 90 percent were in fact peasants. It's the hard knock Traditional categories inherited from the Roman and Merovingian period, distinctions between free and unfree peasants, between tenants and peasants who owned their land, etc., underwent significant changes up to the 11th century. The traditional rights of the free peasants, such as service in royal armies, they had been able to serve in the royal armies as late as Charlemagne's reign, and participation in public assemblies and law courts were lost through the 9th to the 10th centuries, and they were increasingly made dependent on nobles, churches, and large landholders. The mid-8th century to 1000 also saw a steady increase of arist- uh, aristocratic... There goes my, my brain stopped working. Aristocratic and monastic control of the land at the expense of land-owning peasants. At the same time, the traditional notion of unfree dependence and the distinction between unfree and free tenants was eroded as the concept of serfdom came to dominate. From the mid-8th century on, particularly in the north, the relationship between peasants and the land became increasingly characterized by the extension of the new bipartite estate system in which peasants who were bound to the land held tenant holdings from a lord or monastery for which they paid rent, but were also required to work the lord's own demens. Am I saying that right? Demensden? Yep, demens. In the north, some of these estates could be quite substantial. The system remained a standard part of lord-tenant relations into the 12th century. The economic and demographic crisis of the 14th to 15th centuries, which uh, included the agriculture expansion, had lost many of the gains made in the 12th and 13th centuries. It also reversed this trend. Landlords offered serfs their freedom in exchange for working abandoned lands. Ecclesiastical, e- yeah, ecclesiastical. <laughs> And royal authorities created new free cities, Villafrance, Villafrances, Villafrances, <laughs> that should not be a word, or granted freedom to existing cities, etc., etc. Basically, before you didn't have any rights, and now, oh, okay, 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 I guess, you know, if you do this for me, you'll get your freedom. But what is your freedom if it's just bound to the land? By the end of the 15th century, serfdom was largely extinct. Henceforth, free peasants paid rents for their own lands and the Lord's demands was worked by hired labor. This liberated the peasantry to a certain degree, but also made their lives more precarious in times of economic uncertainty. Exactly. For lords who rented out more and more of their holdings for fixed rents, the initial benefits were positive, but over time, they found themselves increasingly cash-strapped as infl- inflationary pressures reduced their incomes. Medieval French kings conferred the dignity of peerage upon certain of his preeminent vassals, both clerical and lay. 
Some historians consider Louis the seventh to have created the French system of peers. Peerage was attached to a specific territorial jurisdiction, either an episcopal see for episcopal peerages or a fee for secular. Peerages attached to fiefs were transmissible or inheritable with the fief, and these fiefs are often designated as pere duche for duchies and pere comte for counties. My French is still a little off. I'm trying to get those that Duolingo time in, man. It's just hard. There are a quite a number of kings that expand out from the 12th to the 14th century with some very important events happening. Philip II Augustus, the reign of this junior king, 1179 to 80, senior king, 1180 to 1223, marked an important step in the history of French monarchy. His reign saw the French royal domain and influence greatly expanded. He set the context for the rise of power to much more powerful monarchs like St. Louis and Philip the Fair. Philip Augustus founded the Sorbonne and made Paris a city for scholars. Prince Louis, uh, the future Louis VIII, reigned from 1223 to 26, was involved in the subsequent English Civil War as French and English, or rather Anglo-Norman, aristocracies were once and were now split between allegiances. While the French kings were struggling against the Plantagenets, the church called for the Albigensian Crusade. Southern France was then largely absorbed in the royal domains. St. Louis from 1226 to 1270. France became a truly centralized kingdom under Louis the ninth. I could be so wrong with these numbers, these Roman numerals. <laughs> I think I got it right, but I could be so wrong. So just correct me. He reigned from 1226 to 70. St. Louis has often been portrayed as a one dimensional character, a flawless example of the faith and administrative reformer who cared for the governed. So yeah, I'm a casual historian. I am not a historian. <laughs> So <laughs> we are on a learning journey together. Keep that in mind. However, his reign was far from perfect for everyone. He made unsuccessful crusades, his expanding administrations raised opposition, and he burned Jewish books at the Pope's urging. Louis had a strong sense of justice and always wanted to judge people himself before applying any sentence. That's very uh, noble of him. This was said about Louis and French clergy asking for excommunications of Louis's vassals. Philip III and Philip IV. Philip III became king when St. Louis died in 1270 during the Eighth Crusade. Damn, why did I not think they didn't have more than three? <laughs> Philip III was called the Bold on the basis of his abilities to combat and on horseback and not because of his character or ruling abilities. Philip III took part in another crusade, crusading disaster. <laughs> I think all of most, all of them were. 
the Aragonese Crusade, which cost him his life in 1285. More administrative reforms were made by Philip IV, also called Philip the Fair, who reigned from 1285 to 1314. This king was responsible for the end of the Knights Templar. If you don't know anything about the Knights Templar, they were people with a lot of fucking money and not just people who went around protecting the pilgrims. Just know that. Fucked up. But they straight did take all their shit. Signed the Old Alliance, the Old Alliance, and established the Parliament of Paris. Philip IV was so powerful that he could name popes and emperors, unlike the early Capetians. The papacy was moved to Avignon, and all the contemporary popes were French, such as Philip IV's puppet, Bertrand de Goth, Pope Clement V. If you know anything about those popes, man, or not very Christian-like. Oh, no, I-, I ain't come looking for no little bars. I ain't got no milk, no cookies, nothing. I came looking for man's butt. The early Valois kings and the Hundred Years' War, between 1328 and 1453, started with the capture of the French king John II at Poitiers in 1356. The tensions between houses of Plantagenet and Capet climaxed during the so-called Hundred Years' War, actually several distinct wars over a period of about a hundred years over under 1337 to 1453. When the Plantagenets claimed the throne of France from the Valois, this was also the time of the Black Death, as well as several civil wars. The French population suffered much from these wars. In 1420, by the Treaty of Troy, Henry V was made heir to Charles IV, or Charles VI, my bad. Henry V failed to outlive Charles, so it was Henry VI of England and France who consolidated the dual monarchy of England and France. It had been argued that the difficult conditions the French population suffered during the Hundred Years' War awakened French nationalism, a nationalism presented represented by Joan of Arc, who lived a very short life from 1412 to 1431. Although this is debatable, the Hundred Years' War is remembered more as a Franco-English war than a succession of feudal struggles. During this war, France evolved politically and militarily, and they also won some shit. (laughs) Joan did not win. She was later recalled as a saint. However, she died burned at the stake. I tried so hard and got so far But in the end, it doesn't even matter She also claimed to be talking or led by angels and some shit. So I feel really bad because she's definitely suffering some trauma. And I think that trauma in a mix of nationalism, you know, because it was very difficult being around at that time where people are constantly in warfare and constantly in conflict, even though there are breaks in between, but you like get a little bit rebuilt and it's fucking torn down again. How much of that generationally, generationally can anyone, any group of people suffer without suffering, you know, uh, mentally 
um, suffering. Uh, or just becoming fevered or radicalized in a certain manner. Although a Franco-Scottish army was successful at the Battle of Bulge in 1421, the humiliating defeats of Poitiers in 1356 in Angacourt in 1415 forced the French nobility to realize they could not stand just as armored knights without an organized army. Charles VII reigned from 422 to 61, established the first French standing army, the Campagnes d'Ordonnance, and defeated the Plantagenets, Plantagenets once and for all at Pate in 1429, and again using cannons at Formnigi. They really be trying me with these words. 1450. The Battle of Castilian in 1453 was the last engagement of this war. Calais and the Channel Islands remained ruled by the Plantagenets. Let's talk about French identity. France in the ancient regime covered a territory of around 520,000 square kilometers. This land supported 13 million people in 1484 and 20 million people in 1700. They don't seem to be as impacted as, say, Great Britain when it came to the Black Death, which reduced the population by like two thirds or at least one third. France had the second largest population in Europe around 1700. They also must have been way better at, you know, giving birth. Maybe they learned something from the Muslims. <laughs> what? But here we go. Comparatively, Britain had 5 million people. Spain had 8 million people. And the Austrian Habsburgs had around 8 million people. Russia was the most populated European country at the time. France's lead slowly faded after 1700 as other countries grew faster. The sense of being French was uncommon in 1500 as people clung to their local identities. This also goes into why currently they like to say we don't see race in France. Not so much as they don't see race. It is simply part of what they have decided to integrate instead of having a any type of local identity. It's fully nationalist identity. And while on some level I can see people being like, well, we're individuals and we should celebrate our own individual culture. There is something to be said about all of the individual cultures being simply mashed together or, or coincided as simply French culture. By the 1600s, however, people were starting to call themselves Bon Francois. With the death in 1477 of Charles the Bold, France and the Habsburgs began a long process of dividing his rich Burgundian lands, leading to numerous wars once again. Surprise, surprise. In 1532, Brittany, Brittany was incorporated into the Kingdom of France. Brittany is not the same as Great Britain. I learned this. <laughs> I had no idea, but yeah, it's pretty crazy. Some people say it might be actually the last place of the true Britons, <laughs> since the Normans technically were from France that took over. 
And at that time, things like a lot of influence after that became French inspired, despite hating the French. France engaged in the long Italian wars between 1494 and 1559, which marked the beginning of early modern France. Francis I faced powerful foes and he was captured at Pavia. The French monarchy then sought for allies and found one in the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Admiral Barbarossa captured Nice in 1543 and handed it down to Francis I. During the 16th century, the Spanish and Austrian Habsburgs were the dominant power in Europe. And they were also very heavily interbred. Oh, no. Oh, no. The many domains of Charles V encircled the France. Encircled the France. Encircled France. I've been listening to too much Noho Hank. The Spanish Tercio was used with great success against French knights. Finally, on January the 7th of 1558, the Duke of Guise seized Calais from the English. The Protestant Reformation, inspired in France mainly by John Calvin, began to challenge the legitimacy and rituals of the Catholic Church. It reached an elite audience. I think a lot of people love to talk about the Protestant Reformation and mention one Martin Luther. However, John Calvin kind of came before Luther, who rather expanded on the man's well, he actually had more protestations with the with the church, whereas and wanted reform, but maybe get away from the Catholic Church, whereas I think Martin Luther wanted just reform within the Catholic Church, but not to actually split off on a different understanding of the Bible. Between 1555 and 1562, more than 100 ministers were sent to France. Nevertheless, French King Henry II severely persecuted Protestants under the Edict of Chateaubriand in 1551. And when the French authorities complained about the missionary activities, the city fathers of Geneva disclaimed official responsibility. The two main Calvinist strongholds were Southwest France and Normandy, but even in these districts, in the Caf- uh, in these districts, the Catholics were a majority. Renewed Catholic reaction, headed by the powerful Francis, Duke of Guise, led to a massacre of Huguenots at Vassay or Vassy in 1562 starting the first of the French Wars of Religion, during which the English, German, and Spanish forces intervened on the side of the rival Protestant, which were the Huguenots and Catholic forces. Many of France's Huguenots nobility are in Paris in August 1572 for the wedding of the Princess Margaret and Henry of Navarre, Four days after the ceremony, there is an assassination attempt on a leading Protestant, Admiral Coligny. It is probably planned by the regent, Catherine de Medici, together with the Guise family, but the admiral is only wounded. The bungle plot prompts Catherine to seriously overreact because she orders the massacre of all Huguenots in Paris. Hi, 
how you gonna start shit and then fearing retaliation just decides to kill everyone the killing begins before dawn on august 24th saint bartholomew's day if you don't know this is called the saint bartholomew's day massacre shops are pillaged families butchered by the evening of august 25th the government calls it to a halt but the mob is now out of control other towns follow suit estimates of the dead vary between 10 and 15,000 Huguenots. So here's a clear example of not men, but females reacting violently and oppressive. So it's not as if all things bad that ever happened was because a man was in charge and gave the order. The bridegroom, in this case, Henry of Navarre, is spared, but he has to declare himself a Catholic. It is more than three years before Henry escapes from the French court, resumes his Protestant faith, and leads the Huguenot cause against a Catholic league headed by the Guise family. By now, the stakes have been considerably raised. Catherine's second son, Charles IV, dies in 1574. Her third son succeeds him as Henry III. He is childless, and in 1584, his only remaining brother dies. The Protestant Henry of Navarre is now heir presumptive to the French throne. The last few years of the Valois dynasty are the stuff of melodrama. Henry III breaks his alliance with the Catholic faction in 1588 and has the two leading members of the Guise family assassinated. He then joins forces with Henry of Navarre, but the king is himself assassinated in 1589. This is how we do. On his deathbed, he names his Protestant and very distant cousin as his successor, thus bringing the Bourbon dynasty to the throne of France. It takes Henry of Navarre, now Henry IV, several years to conquer his kingdom. Paris, hella Catholic and strongly defended, his main obstacle finally yields to him in 1594 after he has once again declared himself a Catholic, and this time for good. It may well be that Henry the Fourth never says the famous remark attributed to him on this topic. Paris volt bien un messe. Paris is well worth a mass. But the sentiment is true to history. France's long religious wars are resolved by the simple expedient of making light of religion. When Henry IV dies in 1610, he has six children by his second wife, Marie de Medicis. Damn, what kind of relative is that? Is that a sister? Is that a cousin? In the previous nine years, this level of productivity is remarkable in that Henry is famous also for the number of his mistresses, causing him to become known as Le Vert Galant, the overgreen or evergreen gallant. Okay. France in the Thirty Years' War from 1635, not to be confused with the Hundred Years' War, because that's how they like to name their wars by how long it may have occurred. The threat of France's international stature comes as it has done since the days of Charles V and Francis I from the joint Habsburg dynasties of Spain and Austria. From 1629, when the Austrian Empire seems to have the upper hand in Germany's war, Richelieu, Richelieu, 
Richelieu, is busy diplomatically in particular urging intervention by Gustavus II in Sweden. When Gustavus does invade and in 1632 reaches as far south as Munich, Richelieu takes advantage of the general turmoil to slip a French army into Lorraine. But by 1635, Gustavus is dead. The Austrian Empire is about to make peace with its German subjects. And Spain is actively campaigning against the United Provinces on France's northern border. Richelieu decides that it is time for overt action. In 1635, he makes an alliance with the United Provinces and Sweden and declares war on Spain and Austrian Empire. It is through all of this turmoil that we finally get to Louis XIV, also known as the Sun King, whose reign lasted for 72 fucking years, in which he put his country on a national scale with a grandeur never before seen. And man, does he bankrupt his country in the process, where at least gives them a whole bunch of financial difficulty after due to his splendor. And the palace at Versailles, constructed between 1664 and 1710, Louis XIV creates an architectural symbol of absolute rule. The vast symmetrical building, sufficiently complete by 1682 to become the permanent home of the French court, has at its center a superb piece of theater. 3,000 courtiers live at Versailles, jostling for the king's attention and favors. So that's why they call him the Sun King, because everything revolved around him. He took that absolute power back for the monarchy and took it away from these lower staffs, but particularly the nobility that seemed to have put the country in turmoil, particularly after the religious wars. Status ever liable to change is made starkly visible in the details of court ritual. Every part of the king's day is a performance, getting up, the lever, eating, the couvert, going to bed, the the coucher, (laughs) or coucher. To be allowed to watch him on any such occasion is a privilege to sit on a stool in his presence, a high honor to be promoted to a chair almost unbearably exciting. Uh, the nation's finances were in dire strait after 25 years of almost continuous warfare that Louis' descendants remained weakened by financial constraints throughout the 18th century. So his reign does leave a lasting mark and could lead to why they felt the need to expand outside of said empire. Yet the reign of Louis XIV gives France a special status in European culture. His method of absolute rule and his Palace of Versailles provide the examples to which lesser European monarchs expire in the coming century. The French style in furniture and interior decoration is everywhere. Uh, the fashion. French authors are in the vanguard of European literature. The French dynasty is on the Spanish throne. And here is where the black and brown and African story really start to um, start to interweave itself with French history. It's because his wife, Louis XIV's wife, Anne of Austria, 
who he absolutely could not stand, treated with nothing but disdain during their 28-year marriage, was a Spanish princess, daughter of Philip III. She is known as Anne of Austria, Austria being broadly used for any of the Habsburg dynasties. Later in her marriage, she did conceive and bear a son, which became the future Louis XV. From here, you really get France standing on a more, uh, what's the word, world stage, not even a province. Uh, It starts wanting to do what everyone's doing at that point, which is colonizing. And while it did start late in the game compared to other Atlantic powers, it begins to rapidly expand and become a leading rival to Britain. In broad terms, this all adds up to a splendid achievement, which Louis the Sun King really brought into effect because he was one of the most powerful kings since Charlemagne. So while he, in fact, did create a cult of personality, one can call it, he certainly got France out of just being a providence, being stuck in between other European powers with their, with the marriage alliance with Spain and the Habsburgs in particular, they became uh, the, the, the Atlantic coast also became um, an attractive offer for them to be able to put their, influence out past their borders and that's exactly what they do in a lot of African territories so next episode we will briefly go over uh, the black influence or the black people that showed up to Henry the 14th court the scandal of the black nun and then we'll start getting into more of how France and black and brown people became a partnership if not also a bit of a subjugated property of or some countries in africa of um of france and how that still is relevant today so we should be discussing between the 14th century, finishing up with the, or not 14th, my apologies, 16th century, and leading up towards maybe the 17th, 18th century. Uh, I do think that this can be about three, uh, a three episode type of thing, but we shall see. Once again, if you want to send feedback or you have some op- uh, uh, interesting observations, to send in blackyourcouch at gmail.com. My social media will be below. Remember to like, share, and subscribe. Until next time, peace, hair grease, and blacker magic.